0: Hey everyone! First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we're producing this podcast and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present, and emerging. Let's go! Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia-Pacific and College of Arts and Social Sciences, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. I am your familiar stranger today, Ian Pollock, together with my fellow familiar stranger, Julia Brown. Hi. And we have two special guests with us on the podcast today. First, Dr. Esteban Gomez. Hello. Dr. Gomez is a Professor of Anthropology at the University of Denver, teaching visual ethnography, museum and heritage studies and archaeology, and he is a co-host of the Sapiens podcast. Welcome. Thanks. And we also have Dr. Carrie Little-Hirsch. Hello. Carrie is an Associate Teaching Professor at Northeastern University in Boston and the host of the Anthropologist on the Street podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Now, we're all gathered here together today at the AAA conference in San Jose which i should mention is not on Ghanawala and ganawalangamri land but on olone and tamian land let's get started julia what are you thinking about this week
1: well i was trying to work out whether i should focus on a particular panel that grabbed my attention but actually it's the it's probably how i'm observing other people around me and myself interact in this conference space that we're in at the moment and As a graduate scholar from Australia, I think it's really fascinating how underprepared I guess I feel um, when I am trying to do the whole professional networking thing. Now, I haven't had any training in this. I don't really know what I'm doing. But So last night I was having a great conversation with someone in my field that I really look up to a lot and it was a great privilege to be talking to her but then she asked me like you know a couple of sentences in so what's your 10-year career goal where do you want to be in 10 years and I just fumbled I didn't really know what to say and I was honest about that but I'm sure that made me look pretty silly and <laughs> um, I guess I'm just interested in the kind of American cultural practices of graduate training in America and this idea of having an elevator pitch that you need to present and so I, I'm also thinking about how at home we've got this thing called tall puppy syndrome, which is a um, an Australian, New Zealand phenomenon, but I'm pretty sure it's quite prevalent in the UK as well, where we prefer to be very modest and we are quite self-deprecating in our humour as much as the way we kind of regard um, regard ourselves and others. So there's the idea that, you know, if someone's doing very well and they're boasting about it, you kind of cut them down because they shouldn't be doing that. But then we apply that to ourselves and we're kind of afraid of, you know, being very confident and appearing like a narcissist or something. So, yeah, I guess I'm just interested in what you got. I mean, you're, you all were trained um, at some stage, including you, Ian, in that, American academic culture, where you, you know, you do put yourself out there, and you're you're probably thinking about it more in a like in a more strategic way, and it's something I'm starting to admire a lot more, and I feel like I need more of myself. So that's a very long-winded spiel, but <laughs> please help me, <laughs> help me be better at professional networking.
2: Oh well, I, I mean, I wish we had good answers for that. I think we all struggle with that. In fact, I remember reading just a few years ago there was something. There was a hashtag going around about, and, and an article about how to pitch your what you do in, in a, a number of few words. And I just remember there was a scholar of this 13th century saint who depicted what she did as studying uh, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer of the 13th century. And I remember thinking, I wish I could do that. Like, where's the class that teaches me how to make that so catchy? I think it's hard. I mean, as anthropologists, we're taught to be so holistic and inclusive of all these different subfields and ideas and topics. And then to put that into one sentence is just challenging. But I, I, your idea also about there being a sort of ego leveling mechanism, um, I don't think that's just unique to Australia and the UK, although Kate Fox in her book, Washing the English, yes, talks a lot about that. Um, yeah. But I think in America, it happens all the time, and, and particularly in a very gendered way. So you know, an elevator pitch is fine, but... Being too confident in your presentation can really backfire, especially for, for women scholars.
3: Yeah, I wouldn't feel bad about not having a 10-year plan. Uh, we, uh, <laughs> yeah. Be employed. That's yeah, my <laughs> yeah. The we just I just got done with two rounds of interviewing for two positions that we're hiring for at our, at our university. We asked each candidate, what is your five-year plan? And the, the, all of them fumbled. There was one that was really, uh, really impressive in terms of how she responded, but for the most part, they all kind of struggled with that five-year plan. And, And I think there is some truth in terms of like, if you sound too confident, then that's kind of worrisome because, you know, not everything should be planned out. You know, there should be some unintended consequences in terms of the decisions you make or how you go about something and things change, right? Like, especially if you do collaborative work, it's surprising that it's a miracle that collaboration actually takes place because, you know, we're, you know, we're all kind of In that mindset of like, you know, how am I going to benefit from this? And that's how you're taught in graduate school to always think about yourself and how you brand yourself. And I think that's really problematic for the field. I think branding has kind of infiltrated academia in so many different ways. But in terms of this, like, how do you brand yourself on the market is really problematic, especially when it comes down to, you know, pragmatic stuff, pragmatic stuff like collaboration. How do you collaborate with somebody? and also get your own at the end, you know, so.
0: Right, the sharing of credit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The sharing of credit and whose name goes before who's on the publication. Yeah. But I was going to say also, it seems like there could be nothing more arrogant, more tall poppy than having a five-year plan. Mm -hmm. Given the state of the academic job market, (laughs) who has any idea whether there will even be anything? Mm -hmm. How do you plan forward?
2: Yeah, there's a bit of cruelty to that question. What's your answer going to be? Overpower a thousand other candidates and procure that one job?
0: Well, unfortunately, I'm going to have to cut us off there and move us ahead. Esteban, tell us, what are you thinking about this week? So, you know, I mean, issues
3: with immigration surrounding our, our administration and, you know, with the detention centers, with children being pulled away from their parents at the border. It's got me thinking about, like, this idea of, documented versus undocumented individuals. and You know, a lot of these individuals that ICE has rounded up... Are you two, are too familiar with what's going on here in the U.S. in terms of... I am. I'm
0: American, so I follow closely.
1: Broadly from the, like, mental health aspect, yeah. Okay.
0: Let me just say that for our Australian listeners, ICE stands for Immigration and Customs Enforcement.
3: Yeah, so ICE is basically they've been rounding up in- individuals. A lot of these individuals are labeled undocumented. However, what's interesting is that they're not necessarily undocumented because you know they they go to court you know there's a whole file files and files of, of you know paperwork uh, for these individuals and so so ICE knows where to kind of pick them up and so it's just this, this whole labeling thing of undocumented is kind of problematic and so actually I'm kind of curious like I mean immigration is a huge issue in Australia too right I mean absolutely what's what's the situation there in terms of
0: like the amount the, the kinds of immigration you get and the, some of the, the major issues. The most comparable situation in Australia to what was going on with family separation at the border would be refugee detention. So a few administrations ago, and administrations turn over really fast in Australia lately, but a few administrations ago they decided that anybody who arrived on a boat seeking asylum would never be allowed to enter Australia. Mm -hmm. It's not illegal to seek asylum, but coming by boat is against the rules. They said they were skipping the line, they're not going through the proper the proper UN refugee resettlement process, and so these people can't be rewarded for that. And in the meantime, some of these boats were going down. They were totally overloaded. People were drowning at sea. It was terrible. So stop the boats at all costs, that was the kind of political directive. There are, are racist and sort of nationalist undertones to that as well in terms of the kinds of people that you keep out. But what then became of people who were apprehended on boats trying to enter Australia is that they entered a sort of limbo Because they've given up the statehood of the countries that they left. For the most part, I would say Afghanistan. Where were they mostly from?
1: Yeah, I think from the Middle East coming through Indonesia.
0: So as refugees, they've sort of given up their citizenships of those countries. But then having been apprehended at sea, they don't have any rights within Australia either. And what happens is they've been put into places like Manus Island, which is in Papua New Guinea, and Nauru, which is a small Pacific nation, that have agreed to, at least temporarily... Accept uh, some of these refugees, they've been put into camps and just left there. Right. And three, four, five years go by with no end in sight for people who've committed no crime. And that is the, I mean, for certainly the, uh, the cohort that I move in in Australia, that's the moral outrage of the country. Right.
2: Um, Coming from a legal anthropology perspective, it seems like in all of these cases, what you're really seeing is the difference between the idea of the structure of the state and how the law is meant to operate, Mm -hmm. and then the actual biopower politics of the state, which can freely manipulate those structures to its own ends. And one of the most nefarious examples I remember, because I, I did actually attend law school, in international law, you know, we have this notion that international law is an actual thing. And in fact, it's this sort of fragile concept of a thing. And you could extend that to say, like, national law, we also think, is right. a structure, but it's really just a concept of a structure. And so in this international law class that James Boyle was teaching, uh, he talks about this moment when Haitian refugees were coming up by boat and were trying to enter the United States and what the United States state's government did was they drafted a memo saying, you know, we ran this past our justices and it's perfectly legal for us to turn them away, which it was not. It was entirely illegal to turn them away. And then they leaked their own memo to embassies all around Washington, D.C. So when the, the embassies got a hold of this leaked document, they thought, well, certainly this is an internal memo we weren't meant to see, so it must be legit. So the policy, you know, conclusion must be legit. And therefore, no one in the international community pointed out the obvious that it was fully illegal, according to United States mm-hmm. and international law, to turn away these bolos of refugees.
3: Yeah, what you're seeing is this is like, you know, the exercise of sovereign power, right? And the, you know, ICE has been unshackled in the last two years, you know, and, and to basically do whatever they want. Yeah, it's just a, it's just like a terrible situation.
0: So. Well, leaving that terrible situation behind for the time being, we're going to have to move on. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Carrie, no, what are you... No, th- don't apologize. It's a good thing to <laughs> Carrie, what are you thinking about this week?
2: Well, you know, interesting that um, to go from such a heavy topic yeah, to sorry. a much more... No, no, but I, I think that that ties into my observation of this weekend of so many people talking about these critical issues at, at the AAA and wanting to to put anthropology out there in ways that can guide these conversations, whether they're about immigration or healthcare or about, um, the concepts of race so you know, whatever it is. Uh, and so what I keep hearing over and over again from so many people in academia or in, in other places is we, we need to get anthropology out there more. And, uh, I just sort of wanted to, to put that out for all of these podcasters who, you know, we are, kind of doing that (laughs) and I think there's a sort of gentle applause by some folks but that that idea that that so many anthropologists have this this notion you know we need to do this and yet there's no plan there's no support you know we're most of us are doing this fully on our own oftentimes without funding or we're scrambling for funding in various places but it's not institutionalized Uh, and there seems to be a general uncertainty about the best way to put anthropology out there Wondering if you have any thoughts
3: about this? Well, you know, I think I might have mentioned uh, this in another somewhere else, but I, I was trained as an archaeologist and, and doing archaeology in Central America and came to the realization that, like, I was, why am I doing this and who am I doing this for, right? And so, which kind of led me into this kind of like moment of like kind of reflection to think about what i want my research and what i want my work to do in general and how do i want to serve the you know, my you know local communities and stuff like that so that's why i started kind of doing more local based research you know right now i'm doing uh, ethnographic work with high school students in denver being impacted by gentrification and also introducing filmmaking courses with high school students you know so they think about you know introducing youth activism but to kind of you know to serve a certain need you know not just for the sake of producing films but have these films and photography exhibits that they're producing to be shown to decision makers in the city, and you know, we we had a, an exhibition in, uh, in City Hall a couple weeks ago, where the, you know people who are deciding on development, you know, got to see how their work is being is impacting these local communities and changing their, their practices because because of that. So, I think that's there's a, a lot of pragmatism in terms of like disseminating our research and being able to kind of work with people or, or you know groups and organizations in our, our own backyard.
1: I guess one issue is that it can be very dangerous to actually be that activist anthropologist, you know, in terms of protecting your participants, protecting yourself. We're living in a time where we are being surveilled everywhere. And, I I mean, I'm myself not working at that kind of leading edge, but from what I have heard from other people at this conference talk about with their experiences in reaching out publicly
2: is it are you coming at it from an ethical yeah i think so in terms of betraying because you know i was thinking more generally about um people just not knowing what anthropology is but also as you're saying it can be incredibly dangerous to stand up and be like well see this is why your white nationalist policy is incorrect." right (laughs) (laughs) that might draw some fire or even talking about ice and talking about borders and you can get serious pushback from
1: yeah, well, like, to be honest, even just talking about immigration policy just yeah. then made me a little bit nervous.
2: Well, I was just speaking yeah. to somebody at the conference who said he has to be very careful because he can lose his grant money if it sounds like he's advocating for a particular immigration policy. Right. Not even if
0: he is, but only if it sounds like he only is. Only if it
2: sounds like it. He might lose his funding because he's not permitted by right. the nation funding him to advocate any position on you know, the immigration practices.
0: It really brings into focus the question of audiences. And you know, I think one thing that as, as broadcasters all of us have to do is we make, we make these decisions about the kinds of audiences that we want to target and how targeted we want to be versus how broadly we want to broadcast, whether we're just trying to reach a few people, whether we're trying to reach the greatest number of people. But sometimes the most important audience is an audience of only one, for instance, the person who administers your grant or the person who runs your department. Or the decision maker, the mayor of your town, or the president of your country.
2: Or your boss.
0: Or your boss, exactly. <laughs> the person who controls something about you, and also the person who controls something about the issue that you're actually trying to impact.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I really appreciate that in terms of what you were saying, Julie, about the... Um, danger involved, especially because we are so interconnected that any anything nowadays comes across as political and possibly threatening. Even things such as, hey, let's broaden our mind and learn about other people. You know, you can have many responses to that. But then I also think about Franz Boas taking his Jewish self into the deep south during Jim Crow and lecturing on race and trying to get people to understand, you know, his evidence of physical anthropology at, at Ellis Island and, and why maybe you should think about race differently and you know, what, what a legacy that we have to live up to and we want to be really careful about running afoul of, of dangerous communities but we have so much to say that could potentially reach folks who just don't know what we have to offer I think we're a very insular community for the most part even students coming into my classroom don't know what anthropology is And to me, that's a real problem for the future of the field. Definitely.
0: Well, with that, we're going to have to move on to the final topic, uh, which is me, what I've been thinking about this week, which is how strange it feels for me to be in America right now. Uh, I come from the U.S. originally. I was born and raised in New York City. I went to college on the West Coast of Pomona. And I've also been living outside of America since 2007, which means I've seen a lot of the changes that have gone on here since that time from afar. So I was living in Jakarta when Barack Obama was elected in 2008. I did notice that change overnight. It suddenly became great to be an American abroad. And I was also doing my fieldwork, my PhD fieldwork, when Trump was elected. And I remember being in Labuan Bajo in Flores and watching the sun go down and having a distinct feeling that it wasn't going to rise again. I had a deep sensation that the country that I had known and that the direction that I thought it was going in was actually completely false. And so coming back here now for the first time since Trump's election, I've been looking around in a different way and feeling quite differently about the country that I find, even, it, even though the places I've been going to are the places that I would normally go as a kind of bi-coastal liberal elite person, I suppose, in New York City and here in the Bay Area where we're at the conference right now. Coming to California and getting the, the haze of the wildfires with that kind of lowering apocalyptic feeling, the unease of all of my friends who live here about the kind of country that they're li- living in, even as they're raking in the big bucks in the tech industry. They're very, very uneasy about the world that they're creating. One of the weird details about Northern California right now are the, the scooters that are in the streets. You guys yeah. been seeing these scooters around? They're like rideshare scooters where you swipe a credit card and you zip around at 20 miles an hour uh, on the streets and sidewalks, and uh, it's deeply bizarre to see people in high heels, and all kinds of people riding around on these scooters. That's really annoying. (laughs) It's it's really annoying. But it's just, there's a feeling of deepening estrangement from this country, which is interesting to me. And I had not thought of myself as a migrant before, but just just yesterday for the first time in an elevator at the hotel, somebody asked me where I was in from, and I said, I'm just in from Australia. And um, that was a strange, I have not quite parsed out the emotions of that yet. I mean, we've got two Americans at the table, two other Americans at the table. We've got an Australian at the table. I wonder if you could say something about about that estrangement and that uh, that feeling of unease and kind of unpredictable change here.
1: Well, I think even what's happening with this conference, you know, we're, we're all up in plush hotels and we're kind of in this bubble. And in the streets, there is, you know, there is this smog. There have been, you know, the death toll is in the hundreds now, right? And no one's talking about it. I find it bizarre from that perspective like I was in DC for the AAA last year and it was the same contradiction happening I was like you know here we are anthropologists you know we we pride ourselves on caring about people and real issues and yet you know we have these big (laughs) get-togethers where it just feels really out of touch it's like we're
0: good at talking about the distant but we're not so good at talking about what's close maybe
1: yeah and even like giving my presentation the other day I found it weird like talking about my participants in a very abstract way you know to an audience that will never know them and you know I won't meet them again and I guess that kind of removal that happens
2: conferences are very surreal places They're, yeah they, they just are you know and, and it's you everyone's out of their normal habitat <laughs> and thrown yeah. together for better or for worse but you know, I, I think as someone you know I, I, who wrestles all the time with the elite bubble of university, you know, accusation because you know, I live in Boston and work in a university. But at the same time, um, you know, I was a military brat and I grew up in small towns and suburbs all over the country. And you know, half my family are Trump voters, and you know, I have tons of friends and family for my whole life who are all across the political spectrum. And so I think that there. Are, there is definitely a sense uh, from, from a big part of the country that there is, uh, there is unease and there's discontent and there's worry, but there's also been that feeling for a really long time from other groups who have felt under-listened to and um, whose, whose lives and situations they felt were underappreciated. So I, you know, for me, it's been a really weird ethnographic period of time watching these politics develop and hearing you know, inside my classrooms all different kinds of perspectives about this. But yeah, you
3: know, I actually don't go to very many conferences anymore just because of that, you know, just because usually, you know, you as an academic uh, or in, you know, each university position generally gives you a certain certain amount of money to to travel every year, right? And so I usually just give that to my graduate students for their research, for that very reason. I just think it's kind of... um,
1: Dislocating and undermines something about what we do. Do you think it's the conference
2: format? That's very alienating. I think
1: it's the conference
3: format. I would say because when I, I get agree. together
2: with people, you know, casually at these conferences, it's such a wonderful opportunity to hear about what they're doing and the kinds of like local work that mm-hmm. is just so enriching and so fascinating. And then you go to a panel, and it's just so formal and
3: yeah, and yeah. yeah. I think the, the it does format make you feel
2: surreal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah. Like Blade Runner, y outside. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is true too. Yeah, you yeah. look out the window, and you're like, the, the world is apocalypse. literally on fire. Yeah. <laughs> it's a slow apocalypse going. On. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> But I think about that. I mean, I live in Colorado, and I'm a Californian. I actually grew up in Laverne. And I get I get a very similar thing over there. Like, Coloradans do not like Californians, you know, because we basically changed the entire economic landscape of that state. And uh, I always talk about this in terms of students, like, in terms of our identity always. You know, when you're placed in a situation where you have to kind of think about your own identity, especially when you're abroad, right, like, you know, if anybody ever questioned or, like, kind of, like, Threw shade at at me abroad. I'm like, no, man, I'm very proud to be an American abroad, you know, but not here in the US, you know. So it's kind of funny how that works in terms of thinking about your own identity politics and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, and in a sense, I mean, that's the gift of travel, which most anthropologists get to experience during their field work, that uh, that being in a different place. Carrie, you did your field work in the United States. I did. Didn't you?
2: Looking at both conservative uh, Christians and New Age mixed group, but a lot of liberals, yeah. So I got a, a pretty good diversity, of making the familiar strange in some respects. Because there's also what I loosely define as my hometown. Uh, being a Navy brat, we moved every two years, you know, four at the most. And so I lived in Virginia multiple times. Um, but I never got to explore the community in this way. So it was um, really revelatory. <laughs> what did you find? <laughs> oh, so many things. But uh, I initially went in to sort of just look at the peculiarity of these two organizations in the same town. And it, it, developed into this kind of interesting look at knowledge production and which I think is very relevant and, and this is I'm working on a book that will hopefully be pertinent to conversations today about um, fake news and alternative facts, but it's really about how communities build um, their sense of what is knowledge like what is true and what is fact and things get filtered through and, and the scientific community was was definitely the third part of this because there were so many ways in which these two religious groups pulled in um, the authority and the knowledge or the half-knowledge of scientific communities that otherwise shunned them.
0: Well, I'd just like to draw attention to the very important fact that you had a revelatory experience in a place you considered to be sort of your hometown. That it's not necessary to travel to the far ends of the earth to estrange what's familiar and discover some really new and interesting things. And with that, I'm going to have to bring this to an end. Uh, I'd like to thank Julia Brown.
1: Thank you very
0: much. Esteban Gomez. Thank you. And Carrie Little Hirsch. Thank you. And me, your host, Ian Pollock. Today's episode was produced by all of us at Familiar Strange. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFSTweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, and Maude Rowe. Thanks for listening and until next time, keep talking strange. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Thank you. <laughs>